Welcome to the Ecom Wiz Podcast, a podcast that helps Amazon sellers to dominate the marketplace. And I do mean dominate. Dominate. Each week, we deliver the best interviews with some of the top Amazon influencers in the industry. This is the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Rob Stanley with the Ecom Wiz Podcast. And today my special guest is Mike Hart, the CEO of Edison, a trademark enforcement firm. Hey Mike, thanks for being on. Hey, absolutely. I'm I'm pretty happy to be here. What's up, Rob? Yeah, good to have you on. So uh, a big subject that comes up in the world of selling on Amazon all the time. Yeah. And we're going to help them with it. And that is what Amazon sellers can do to protect themselves from knockoffs. So sure. let's let's jump kind of straight in and talk about uh, uh, what have you seen people dealing with with knockoffs? I mean, are they infringing on trademarks? Or are they just straight up, uh, you know, taking people's product and reselling it? Is mm-hmm. that a knockoff or an issue? You know, give us a little insight into what have you seen and what, what have you done to deal with them? Okay, cool. So I'm mostly going to focus on what most people call like the private label side of the business. So that's like designing your own products, bringing it over from your local US factory or your factory in Asia, whatever, instead of uh, reselling like Nike shoes and so on. Um, Yeah. So in terms of like knockoffs, uh, people knock everything off. And if you have a, if you don't have a successful product, no one is going to knock you off. You don't have to worry about it. But as soon as your product has any kind of like sales momentum, um, people are going to knock you off both Americans and Chinese, whether you know, both Americans and Chinese, they use software to identify new products that are selling well. So it's probably within six months, within six months of you launching on Amazon, if you have something new that's hot, people are going to copy you. And it doesn't matter. We can go into what each of these things means, but um, it doesn't matter if you have copyrights, trademarks, patents, um, all that stuff is going to get infringed on, which means that they're going to copy it in some way. And uh, that's what you're going to face if you end up launching a successful product. Yeah. So I, I should note, we're not, we're not giving out legal advice. You should definitely seek an attorney for this. What Mike is here to do is to more talk about his experiences of what he had to deal with, with uh, people knocking off his products and what he's done to basically get solutions to that or get them off of that. So just a little uh, warning there on <laughs> Mike is not an attorney and you should always seek legal advice uh, you know, on any of this content. But uh, so give us maybe even an example of, uh, you know, if you can, of what, what you ran into with your product sure. and then what you ended up having to do to actually get the person either off your listing or stop selling what they are and uh, yeah. go from there. Okay, sure. So uh, yeah, like Rob said, I'm not an attorney, but I've, uh, I've been through so many lawsuits and I, I might know what I'm talking about at this point. So um, the way that I ended up learning about intellectual property is I founded a, a toy company back in 2010 when I was like really, really not wise about how to make money. And some years later, I, I discovered Amazon. Originally, we sold retail. And I had an office in China and actually um, at the time I thought one of my employees was copying me. It turns out it was two, not just one. And it wasn't just two. It was also their husbands and their friends. It was a whole thing. So that's what gave me the first uh, taste of how copycatting knockoffs can go. And I didn't know anything about intellectual property at that time. And I didn't have a registered trademark. 
So uh, it was it was enormously difficult to get these people to stop counterfeiting my products. They were they were sending in lookalike items into FBA while they were while one of them was working for me. It's pretty brutal, um, and it it really sucked, you know. And so in basically like the fact that that not only cost me a bunch of money, but was also personal because I like, I knew those people. I saw them every day. Um, I ended up like going to the ends of the earth to kind of like get them to stop and to kind of get my, my revenge in a way. And so that's, that's basically what ended, what took me from starting the toy company to founding this other company, which helps, people who have really big infringement problems, not only stop the infringement, but also recover money from the people who are infringing. I'm not really here to sell that, but that's how I got into IP. I'm actually just here. I have a, I wrote an article. It's, it's not really supposed to be a tie into the business and it's not, but it's called um, starting a physical products company. You're going to need a lawyer. And what it does is it like lays out like the different types of intellectual property that's out there. So you got copyrights, you got patents and trademarks. It tells you like how much roughly you should spend for each of those and how you should set up that transaction with a lawyer. Um, and like it gives examples showing like, okay, copyright's going to protect your images. It's going to protect your text, like your actual text listings. It's going to protect your packaging. Trademark is going to protect your, your brand name. So other people can't put your trademark in their, in their title and attempt to like, you know, boost their search results. And then patents are for designs, whether it's a functional design, like how, how an iPhone works or the shape of an iPhone, which is a, a design patent. So the shape of an iPhone is a design patent. How an iPhone works is a utility patent. And so all this, all this different type of intellectual property. And basically, if you're successful in a consumer products industry, like you have to figure this stuff out because people are going to knock you off. And when they knock you off, if you don't have any intellectual property, you're going to basically, you're going to stop making money because competition is going to come in and you're going to fight over price. It's going to go down to zero. You might get beaten on price. So you got to figure this out. If you're in the consumer products industry, you have no choice. You are now also in the world of intellectual property. Absolutely. So a couple of points of reference there, uh, just regarding what Mike said, uh, be sure to check the description wherever you're hearing or seeing this. I will make sure there's a link to that article he just talked about. And then another thing you should do is maybe take a look back at our other podcast or videos. We have had some attorneys on talking more specifically about uh, patent trademarks and, and that type of issue. That's another reference point you can take a look at uh, besides what we're talking about here. So it, it sounds like, I mean, that that's pretty pretty rough to get hit where you're uh, this uh, where basically people are working for you and turning around and taking that and and basically making knockoffs. Now, did you ever deal with and, and I think I remember something about this. Like, so going forward after you kind of learned that they were doing that, you were you set up some. I'm assuming you set up some uh, trademarks or some patents in place or things to kind of block them from doing that. Did you ever have to deal with uh, customs and borders to get them the information to try to block those items from being it, coming through the port? Yeah. So um, for us, step one was getting our trademark. If someone is knocking you off, you can actually tell the U.S. P 
patent and trademark office, hey, people are knocking me off. I want you to look at my trademark application faster. Mm -hmm. That's an option. You can pay a little bit more money. Um, so step one was getting a trademark. Then we ended up filing a bunch of lawsuits, but whatever. Then we ended up getting a bunch of copyrights. Then later we made a, um, oh, so this is kind of, the, this is the product. It's, uh, it's called Brain Flakes. It's a toy. And so we started with just the trademark. Then we went to a copyright. Um, it's a Black Widow spider. It's kind of cool. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and then what we ultimately ended up doing is we came up with like an innovation in how the, the pieces interlock with each other. And we ended up getting a utility patent on that. Nice. Um, because I'm anal, I want to like reassemble my, my <laughs> Black Widow spider before I continue. So that was kind of like what we did in terms of like getting our intellectual property to cover us. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so once you got that intellectual property, did you have, to, how, did, what was the path you had to take to get it to like custom border protection? Oh, I'm sorry, so, dude. I forgot yep. that part. Of your no, question. that's okay. Um, <laughs> so we went through that and uh, we did eventually with a lawyer file. Uh, I forget what it's called, but the, whatever you need to file with the customs and border protection in order to get your products locked in the border. And that's yep. been up for like one or two years, but it doesn't seem to work <laughs> to oh, be yeah. honest with you. I mean, we have that block on our trademark with customs and border protection, but they've never once informed us that they've stopped anything. And we continue to see stuff flood in that infringes on our intellectual property. So like you can get it, it's like cheap. It's not, a, it shouldn't be a big deal to get, but at least for me, it hasn't worked. So yeah. I think, I think some of the problem is that they you know, they run into, there's just so many things they would have to know to be able, and they'd have to look for that specifically. And you, you're talking about hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of custom agents dealing with millions of products coming in and, mm -hmm. you know, them to have a vast knowledge of every single thing they got to block. And, and fortunately it just doesn't work that way. So do you find that most of the time uh, you have to end up doing a lot of the work yourself, right? That's what it sounds like. You have to be the one out there looking to find where it is, go to Amazon, tell them that, Hey, this is a knockoff and needs to be taken yeah. down or violate something. So what's kind of the process you've done to, uh, check everywhere. Cause I mean, there's not just Amazon, there's other platforms they could be yeah, selling yeah. on out there. Yeah. Um, first of all, you're, you're totally right about the customs and border protection. It's not so easy for them to have like mastery of like, you know, the millions of different products that get imported. Is this infringing? Is it not infringing? They're not judges, right? And judges get weeks to figure this out. Um, the work that I've had to put in, I mean, I'm in like a weird position because I, I ended up founding this second business that, you know, helps people like do this full time. But so basically we, that second business uses custom software and people in the Philippines and like puts those two things together in order to like find everyone who's stealing your images on on everything from walmart.com, amazon.com, wish.com, Alibaba, to, to text, you know, people stealing your text, people using your trademark. Uh, so that's basically what we do. I mean, we just like monitor it. Like to be perfectly honest with you, like it, it really depends on what type of company you're running, like your brand and stuff like that. I mean, like sometimes you just, someone's knocking you off on wish. It's like, you don't really care. It's like, it's not eating into your Amazon sales or something like that. 
But then if you have a different type of pro different type of company where like maybe you're selling something that's like a medical device or something that involves safety or something like that, like I highly recommend that you do clamp down on that stuff because in the past, um, I could talk about this. We, we have an ongoing lawsuit with uh, a company called Creative Kids and Creative Kids, they just knock off everybody and they're like a big company. But one day we got a, uh, a Better Business Bureau complaint from some customer who was like, I bought your original product and then I bought it again later and the pieces were like totally different and they were thin and, the, and I got chipped and it was terrible. And I got this like big complaint with the Better Business Bureau. And it turns out that the guy bought our original product and then he bought someone else's, he bought Creative Kids' product and then filed a BBB request. So uh, that sucked. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it all just depends on how, like kind of how your company works and how important it is to clamp down on every little thing. Because if again, if you're successful, there are going to be thousands of people who are knocking you off from, from terrible ways to, ah, you know, like they use one of our images one time type of situation. Yeah. Do you, do you sometimes find yourself balancing, like you're mentioning wish or somebody used your image one time? Um, yeah. you know, I, I used to do this, like people would take our videos and repost them on YouTube. Well, luckily I had, I, I was in good enough with YouTube as a uh, creator and I had certain rights that I could basically oh. file and have their video taken down almost instantly. But when it comes to a product like that or an image, let's say, uh, you have to kind of weigh like, okay, how much are they making and how much is it hurting my business and what's it going to cost me to go to an attorney or somebody and have yeah. it taken down? You know, like you said on Wish, it's like probably nobody's ordering it anyways and it's probably not a super hot item, you know? So it's like, is it worth going through the process? But when you were talking earlier about, you know, having to go after these people that work for you, um, mm -hmm. obviously that you were the factory was in China. So did you have to actually file suits over there in China also? And what wow. was kind of the process? No? Uh, no? Yeah, not China. All right. So okay. uh, great questions. Again, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like anytime you're going after someone, it's you're like weighing the different factors. Like as a business person, like you have to be like, am I, should I be making money by developing new products, doing marketing, or should I, you know, be spending all my time with lawyers, getting losing your hair going gray you know <laughs> so you kind of need to i have a comb over i'm losing it too. all right so you gotta gotta figure out that calculation in your head you're, you're absolutely right and then i forget your question i feel like i'm getting COVID or something my brain is no fine. it's okay what i think I, I i was asking whether you had to file the suit in china i think was oh yeah question. thank you um so no it, it turns out that all these companies uh, that are knocking you off uh, or that were knocking me off and I can go into some of the funnier things I've seen. Some of it's pretty funny. Sorry about that. I'm going to move my phone. Um, they're all operating in the United States. Okay. Okay. Right. So if you're a Chinese company and you're selling on Amazon, despite what they would prefer, they're operating in the United States. The problem that you're going to run up against when you're suing them is that they're just going to flush their money back to China. And so if you've had other attorneys on here, they're just going to be like, well, it's impossible to sue the Chinese because they're going to see, I'm definitely not an attorney. They're going to flush their money to China. There's nothing you can do. Uh, or I don't know, whatever they're going to talk about. Um, so, but 
there's a way where you just basically tell the courts like, hey, they're operating here and they have money here and they're ripping us off and it's not fair and it happens all the time. So can you do something about it before they just send the money over to China where it's impossible to get? And if you if you figure if that is what I had to figure out when I had to chase after my first, my employee who was knocking me off and I figured it out. And that's why I ended up founding that that second business. Um, sure. Um, yeah, but so that product that I showed you before, it's been super successful and no exaggeration. Um, we have sued over 500 companies knocking us off majority in China, some in the United States that in in those 500, I have two employees, their husbands, I have two suppliers. And I also like a week after publishing that article, I found out that one of my closer friends that was in a Facebook group, he did the same thing and he ended up infringing on my copyrights. I mean, this stuff sounds like I'm being insane, that like I must be like some sort of like evil lawsuit machine. And while I am a lawsuit machine, like all this copying is legit. It really happened. And if you go to check out that article, that I talk about, uh, you're starting a pro- physical products company, you're going to need a lawyer. You can kind of see how that works and it's all public record. So you'll know. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. So how about yeah. this? Let's, let's switch gears just slightly. Sure. Let's talk a little more about, so when people are researching products mm-hmm. and they find a product, they got the good pricing, they're ready to almost go with manufacturing prior to doing that. What would you do personally to kind of make sure that there isn't a trademark or a patent. Uh, what kind yeah. of advice do you give on that? Because I think a lot of times, you know, people are so vested, like Amazon sellers are so vested in finding that next product, getting that next product. And, and you yeah. know, maybe it's because they're getting started and they haven't got to the level where they're producing or manufacturing their own products yet, but they're just doing kind of private label stuff. Yeah. And they want to make sure that, hey, before I bring this in, how do I check on this to make sure that I'm not violating something and getting in trouble? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And my answer would be different according to where you are in your Amazon career. If you're um, just starting out, as you said, like that's how I started out. I would just look for things that I thought would sell well and I'd screen print a logo on them, kind of. And, and these days I try to do something that's like more innovative. I wanna bring something to the market that's new. If you're just starting out, certain products are probably going to be fine. You can just use your intuition. Like if you've seen something similar a hundred different ways, it's probably okay. If you want to be absolutely certain that you're not infringing on someone's patent, which is usually where people get in trouble with this, um, what you can do is you can, if, if you got no money, you can figure it out yourself. Just go on to patents.google.com and just start searching away. If you got money and you're also, um, you know, a very conservative person, maybe risk averse, you can find a patent attorney and you can say, Hey, I want you to, to tell me, to give me a written legal opinion about whether or not this product that I'm bringing over is infringing. Mm -hmm. Okay. On some sort of patent and that, and then don't let them charge you hourly. Okay. If you let them charge you again, not an attorney, right? Telling <laughs> you the, the secrets. If, if you let them charge you hourly, they're just going to be like, well, I don't have that much to do on Wednesday. I could just work on this for a few more hours and, you know, clear an extra thousand dollars. Right. So there's that incentive. 
You're like, I need a flat rate price for you to give me this. That's how you need to go into that negotiation. Now, if you're like more advanced, oh, one other thing, like, I mean, if you're just like really small, just like, just, just do it. Just like, don't even worry about it. And then if your product becomes successful, then go worry about what the legal situation is later. But if you're just getting started out and, and like you have a job somewhere else, like it's more important to start fast and to actually commit than it is to worry about every little legal thing that could possibly go wrong. Cause you'll go nuts and never actually get anything done. Yeah. Yeah. When, I mean, you're right though. If you know how to use a computer to research products, you know how to use a computer to go like do some basic research. I'll give you yeah. a great example. Uh, th this was quite a few years ago. And I remember we found this product over in China and mm -hmm. it, and I'll give the product and everything. It was like a little uh, gold colored uh, sort of tube that would uh -huh. go on the end of your shoelaces, like on where the plastic part yeah. is, right? And then you, you there's a little screw on the side you would screw in to make it stay. And then it looked like your shoelaces had like these gold ends on them, right? And they were kind of, and they're metal. And uh, we were like, man, these would be really cool. And we started, you know, I, we got back from our China trip. We, you know, had hundreds of products. I started looking up each one, trying to figure out, you know, what just literally, like you said, going to Google patents and just doing searches, uh, looking at, you know, do, just searching even something like uh, tips on end of shoelaces, just Google search. Yeah. yeah. And it came up and then it's like, oh, okay, well, now that I've got, maybe it looks like the biggest brand name. I'll go to Google and search that brand name. And sure enough, it was patented and, and they had a, a patent on it. And we were like, okay, pff, scratch that. I mean, you know, we had a list of like 20, 30 items we wanted to bring in. So scratching one off wasn't that big of a deal. You know, and I probably out of that 20 list, I think I probably found six or seven that were, you know, had trademark or patent type issues or uh, I keep yeah. forgetting the wording for it. But, you know, it was like, it, it wasn't worth the dealing with, you know, and it was like, okay, we got all these other great products that don't have issues. Let's bring those in. The margins are there. Let's just do that. So, I mean, that, that was, it's, if you, again, if you know how to search and find product, you know how to use Google good enough to go find, do a basic search. So, you know, I advise doing that and, and, and see how that goes. But uh, why don't you tell us, so, so Mike also has this, uh, uh, he was kind of showing an example of those of you who are watching the video. If he didn't, mm -hmm. he has this great toy product, like interconnecting oh. parts that you can make things out of. And uh, is it via heart? Yeah, yeah. I, well, first of all, I just want to say that sure. what you just said is actually spot on. Like okay. you can figure this stuff out. And again, if you don't have a lot of money just do it yourself and yeah, you can just click through stuff. Like you find one patent and it'll cite the other patents. You can click those. It's kind of a pain, but yeah. All right. So my toy company is called, uh, via heart, via heart. I don't even have via a heart. preferred pronunciation. <laughs> um, but we just make a bunch of toys and like our thing is we're all about like inspiring two things, capability and confidence in kids. And, you know, almost everything we sell is, is about that. We make building toys. We have a plush line called Tiger Tail Toys. We also make an active play product called Goodminton. Awesome. And um, now you shouldn't you... copy any of that stuff. Like, trust <laughs> yeah, me, don't... I'm totally the wrong person <laughs> to copy. Like I assure you. So Mike, why don't you tell us though, like, are, are you designing or do you have designers that help design some of this stuff for you? Like, how are you coming up with some of these concepts for your toys? Yeah. I'll, so I'll be real. Um, when I first started that, I, I just would 
copy things that were interesting the uh, usually from like overseas markets like i would find something that was like in china or in japan that like wasn't i've been doing this since 2010 um and i would then i would like brand it and i would like you know redesign it give it a good name and stuff like that um and that's how a lot of our most successful products were were formed but then over the years you know the beautiful thing about this industry well, it's not beautiful but one thing about this industry is you sell stuff and then you learn about the product through reviews and then you can actually make modifications to make it better and so we would start with things like you know i didn't invent interlocking plastic discs that has been around since like 1950 and sometimes people were like, you didn't invent that. I was like, yeah, I know. We never said we invented that, okay? But we do make small little improvements that are so subtle, but like we have the click in the disc, which is powerful. And then we have this like special way that they come together now that is, you know, a little bit like Lego. So Lego wasn't the first company that made building blocks. There were actually some companies in the UK that started it. And then the Danish guys made some slight improvements got patents and then they had like, you know, I forget, they had a nice run of patent protection and then they became a brand. So what we do is, what we did is we would just find stuff that we thought would sell because I, you know, I didn't have any money and I didn't know what I was doing. So I just needed to get the money fast. And then once we became successful, then we really tuned in on the product development. And my wife is a pretty good designer and I dabble in it a little bit. I try, I got real good at like injection molding. So I know how to, how to make, you know, uh, you guys can't see this because you're on a podcast, but there's a video, but you know, plastic products are usually yeah. injection molded. And I kind of figured out how a lot of that stuff works. And nice. that's just kind of what you need to do when you're in the consumer products industry, you got to make stuff, hopefully make money. If it makes money, you have to continuously improve it. Then if you improve it in a way such that it is innovative and, 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 and if, it, if it's new and innovative, then you got to find intellectual property to protect that because people are going to copy you if it's good. Yeah. So sticking with the, the toy sort of business, at sure. what age range have you found is the best age range to kind of be when it comes or to make products for in the toy? Uh, don't care. So, really? yeah, I mean, I, we have to make sure that our products don't have choking hazards sure even though they're not intended for ages like you know one or two um i try to avoid baby because i don't know anything about babies um i'd like to know something about babies but i gotta check with my wife first um and so you know we're we're agnostic about that we just want something so long as it's inspiring confidence and capability capability in children it's good enough for us and so that's just kind of like what we look at and you know yeah, so, so it doesn't matter three to twelve it's all good it's just we want to make a product that we're proud of nice so if there is people out there interested in getting into the toy industry and i know it's a really tough one it's tough just like the supplement industry but if they wanted to get into what's some of the issues or things they'll run up against like do you have to because you're yeah. dealing with kids is there certain uh and i don't know the right terms but like inspections or yeah. things that has to go through before it can become a viable product and be sold to children 
Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I got a silent phone call as we were doing this. I have um, some of our products are like in this weird uh, Amazon suspension limbo type thing right now where like, so basically to answer your question in a more direct way, if you want to sell toys in the United States, you have to certify that they're compliant with U.S. toy law. So in order to do that, you have to make sure that they are, and many people don't, but, yeah. and then you have to get testing. You have to test and, and check whether or not the eyes on that plush animal are going to pop off or whether or not the brain flakes disc, my, my interlocking disc toy is called brain flakes, whether or not that's a choking hazard. And then in addition to that, you also need to figure out um, like, are, is there lead? Are there phthalates? Are there these chemicals in the products? And so you have to certify all that stuff and you have to do testing. It's very expensive and it sucks. Um, I mean, it's good in a way because it's protecting consumers, obviously, but as a business owner, it's a real headache, especially when Amazon is putting your products in limbo for no reason and your products are safe and compliant. Yeah. So exactly. if you want to get into the toy industry, um, my my words of wisdom for you would be like like i think the, if you want to get into this you need to kind of like really be into it you need to love it because it is hard i mean everything in this in these businesses are hard um but you're gonna need to get a mastery of like the regulatory stuff and you're gonna need to get a mastery of the ip stuff the ip stuff you can worry more about once you're actually making money once you have something to protect but for the regulatory stuff, which is all the safety and compliance issues, like just don't sell an unsafe product because you're going to feel like 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 a bad person and down the line, you're going to get in trouble and you don't want that. So that's the toy industry. It's, yeah. it's also very seasonal. You have it's flat, flat, flat. And then Christmas happens, holidays. And then and then you have to deal with all these massive headaches. So, um, yeah. And Mike, dealing with like the pl plastics type stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. So how vital for you has a uh, 3D printer been to be able to make prototypes and stuff? Uh, not, not vital. So really? I, had, I had high hopes, um, but it turns out that the tolerances. So if you've ever tried to 3D print like a, a Lego building block, it doesn't fit as nicely as the ones that are like the official Lego building blocks. And that's because like, the, sometimes the 3D printer makes it 1.1 millimeters instead of 1.2. But that that tenth of a millimeter can be like super important in terms of uh, the fit. So we tried 3D printing some stuff and like I had a whole bunch of it, but it, it the quality was just never there such that we could actually test it properly. So then we basically just went to the old school methods to kind of test things. And that's what we're doing to do the testing. But we did try with a 3D printer. Yeah, I, I would have I would have thought like just for proof of concept, not necessarily to like send it to somewhere and say, here's the prototype, make this. But because you probably want more of like a CAD or something more specific yeah. uh, in a drawing. But I was thinking like a proof of concept, if you have an idea, you know, you could kind of be like, oh, well, I wonder if that'll sort of work and make it off a 3D printer just to, you know, kind of try it. So uh, it sounds like maybe that's not the perfect way to go because... Well, it may be if you're just going proof of concept, but not like with a lot of detail or uh, tolerances being uh, really tight, like you were saying, like a, a, a Lego or something like that is obviously going to be a lot tighter. So 
why don't you tell everybody? Well, first of all, actually, what what's been your most successful toy? Has it the one you showed me, or uh... yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely been Brainflakes. That is a, by far Brainflakes. our most successful product. Then we also have a product called Goodminton. So it's not called Badminton; it's called Goodminton. I highly yes. recommend giving your products good names, good, um, like good, good names. Memorable. <laughs> and so Brainflakes is like a play on the cereal brand flakes. That's cool. Um, but. Uh, yeah, those have been our most successful toys. And then back to 3D printing. You're totally right. 3D printing is great for for most people, especially if you're doing things in plastic. It just turned out for us, we would get the concept, like you said, we could see it, we could hold it up. It was cool. But then it just wouldn't connect with anything else that we had mm. built. And because it didn't connect, we were just like, oh, this is not the best prototyping method. We're going to go to something else. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, now, what what did you do prior to starting the toy company? Like, what kind of background did you have, and what brought you into? Hey, I'm going to start this toy company and sell on Amazon. Uh, that's like that. That's a weird question. So, um, I really wanted to be a like a chess grandmaster when I was younger. I started the company when I was like 22 or 23. I don't remember. And at some point I figured out that I was not going to be a chess grandmaster <laughs> or <laughs> if I was going to be, I was never going to be like good enough where I would be able to like really make a living. So then I was like, I'm going to become a grandmaster of entrepreneurship. <laughs> and um, it took a lot longer than I thought. And I'm not sure I'm there, but um, yeah. So I, I, I worked at a, like a financial firm out of, college after getting fired from some other company and then I just quit and I I ended up just like staying at home or at one point I lived with an 85 year old woman in a in a nice apartment it sounds terrible but she had a big house in New York City and I got to stay on the top floor and I had free rent I just had to like keep track of her make sure she didn't get she didn't like fall or something like that in the house and then I spent a lot of time in China and those were the ways that I just like was able to save money so that I could just pour myself into the business. These are all like pre Amazon things. Sure. It was really hard, but I'm glad I persevered, stuck with it. Not to get too much off topic, but I remember I was reading through your bio here and it says that you won, you won quite a bit of money playing chess. I so did. Tell, yeah. Tell us just a, briefly, tell us a little about that. Sure. So when I was a kid, I played in like one or two chess tournaments. And I wasn't very good. And then I got a, I got a chess rating. And then uh, I'm just like a, like a weird person where like if I decide to do something, I will just like spend every waking minute, hour, just like focused on that 100%. And so instead of like studying or going to class or doing anything intelligent during school, I basically just decided to play online chess like obsessively for multiple hours a day. Turns out if you do that, you get pretty good at chess. And uh, my rating had like stayed the same level from when I was five. So <laughs> I'm like 18 years old and I'm just like playing, I like, you know, Malcolm, out, uh, Malcolm Gladwell outliers levels of chess. So I got really good. And then there's this one tournament in Philadelphia called the World Open where the cash prizes, this was in 2008. So the money was like, you know, this is pre-inflation times or whatever. And so uh, I ended up winning my section in 2006. I did it and I lost. And then I, I went back and two, two years later, I got better. 
and then I won $16,000. And that's important because like in entrepreneurship, like you, you try, you fail, but then you're just like, I'm going to try differently. And then if you just keep doing that, eventually you succeed. So I won $16,000 in a chess tournament in 2008. And at the time it was the happiest moment of my life. It was, it was really awesome. And it like made me feel like I could do stuff if I just worked at it. And yeah. so that was very useful in, in entrepreneurship, even though I am not a grandmaster. <laughs> and I read but lawsuits, I guess. That's right. Now I read also that you self-taught yourself Chinese uh, or Mandarin. And uh, was that brought on from moving over there? Like it was kind of like, hey, I needed to learn this to be able to communicate with people and understand things. Or is it just something that you learned prior to going over there to China? No. So um, I was like, I was like, hey, I'm going to start this business where I'm going to like create products and I'm going to sell them. And I used to go like store to store trying to sell them to toy stores because this is pre-Amazon. And then I figured out that all the factories were in China and uh, I sucked at business. So I had a lot of free time. I should have just been selling, but I was like, I'm going to learn Chinese. So then I like, I downloaded Rosetta Stone. I snuck into university classes because I was pretty young at the time. I like looked like a university student. But then they like found out that I wasn't a student. So they kicked me out and they're like, you have to pay for this. You can't just go to the university. And then I eventually ended up moving to China. And then I moved to a part of China where there were like no people, but Chinese people. So I was like, I'm going to learn Chinese. And I just like, I bought a book and I, I got pretty good. I'm like pretty solid now. That's awesome. It, 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 it sounds like from the whole experience with doing the chess stuff, you really dove into it like you did with uh, chess, right? When, when oh, it comes yeah, to dude, learning. I'm totally like a, I'm an insane person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I jumped right in. That's really cool. That's really cool. And, and how long did you end up spending over in China? And uh, what maybe experiences did you learn both pro and con from uh, being over there? Uh, yeah, so I, 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 in aggregate, I probably spent two years living in China on and off. I would spend like three months there and then I'd go back to America to like sell things. I'd go back to China because like some, you know, stuff like that. What did I learn in China? Um, a lot, man. Like when you get like airdropped into a place where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, you don't know anything about anything, you get like wrecked. So like I learned how things can go badly. You know, I, my first container I ever imported was like, it was all full of product that was defective. And I, I mean, I, I literally like, I, I brought it to my mom's house and, and in my basement, I like, I, I found illegal immigrants at like a church at 7am. I picked them up, brought them back to the house and we just went through it. We just sorted all the defective product and then I sent it to Amazon. I'm, we're not still doing those things, but so things in China, I like, I learned how tough life can get, which made me tougher as a person, which was like a tremendously good thing. And then it also opened my mind up to a different way of thinking about things because in America, we think that like the way things are done here should be the way things are done everywhere. And we only think that we have like, this is the mindset that all people should have. But when you go to other countries, especially countries that are quite different from the West, you know, the Western world, the United States, you get a whole different perspective. And so it was a very painful, difficult experience to go through all those things, but I'm so grateful for it because I learned so much, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So just real quick, uh, again, everyone, uh, referring to the article that uh, Mike has, starting a physical product company, you're going to need a lawyer. I'll make sure to have that link in the description. 
And yeah. uh, Mike, do you want to tell everybody like how they get a hold of you? They just contact you on social media or through your companies. Why don't you give them a little info? Oh uh, yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my real name is Molson, like the beer. So M-O-L-S-O-N underscore heart, H-A-R-T. You can follow me on Twitter. And if you got questions about intellectual property, just like uh, just reply to one of my tweets on Twitter and be like, hey, what do I do here? And uh, I'll answer them. And then you should totally read. If you want to learn more about IP, you should just totally read that article. It's, it's a really good article. I'm really proud of it. It was the first time I published something that people actually read. Um, and uh, other than that, if you've got kids, you should absolutely buy Brain Flakes, our interlocking plastic disc toy. Or, yeah, you should do that. And then um, don't copy me. <laughs> yeah so once again it's mike hart he's ceo of edison a trademark enforcement firm and he's also ceo of, of viaheart a toy company hey mike thanks for being on the econ Wiz podcast and real quick before we go this is actually my last podcast i'll be doing for the econ Wiz podcast and uh thanks for being on uh there is a new uh person taking over as basically the uh uh host of the econ Wiz podcast but I'll be moving on and thanks to everybody who's been listening for the last year and a half. And Mike, thanks for being my uh, last guest on the EcomWiz podcast. And I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the EcomWiz podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor, FeedbackWiz.com. Be sure to use coupon code POD50 for 50% off your first paid month with FeedbackWiz. Again, the code is POD50. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Join us next week for more great tips to help Amazon sellers dominate the marketplace.